Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Martin Luther King Jr. from his speech, Where Do We Go From Here? Love and Power. There is nothing wrong with power if power is used correctly. One of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as polar opposites so that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. It was this misinterpretation that caused Nietzsche, who was a philosopher of the will to power, to reject the Christian concept of love. It was this same misinterpretation which induced Christian theologians to reject the Nietzschean philosophy of the will to power in the name of the Christian idea of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. And this is what we must see as we move on. What has happened is that we have had it wrong and confused in our own country. I am concerned about a better world. I'm concerned about justice. I'm concerned about brotherhood. I'm concerned about truth. And when one is concerned about these, one can never advocate violence. Through violence, you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate. Darkness cannot put out darkness. Only light can do that. And so I say to you, I have decided to stick to love. For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong demanding love. I have seen too much hate. I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizens counselors in the South to want to hate myself. Because every time I see it, I know that it does something to their faces and their personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love.
if you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving against wrong when we do it. Because John was right. God is love. He who hates does not know God. But he who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. Thank you all for being here today, taking part in the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Day session, honoring our great American Bodhisattva, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's a short session, only two days. It feels much too brief. I wish it were longer and we could stay together that much longer and have that much more time to honor Dr. King's memory. Fortunately, there's another session coming up this weekend. So anybody who has the time and energy and dedication can take part in that session. So Dr. Martin Luther King, because our Sangha is generally speaking, comprised of older individuals. Many of you remember Dr. King, although most of you who do remember him, like myself, were just children when he was murdered. As a child, I knew of Dr. King. I knew of his work. I admired him to the degree that a young child can love a public figure. I loved him. 
And like many Americans, I was shocked and dismayed by his death. Some of you in the Sangha are younger and know of him only by reputation, only by what is said about him. And you may be under the mistaken belief that he was a universally loved and admired figure in his own time. But that was not at all the case. He was a man who was persecuted greatly and suffered greatly for his beliefs. His home was bombed. He was imprisoned. He was often under threat of death. He was surveilled and the subject of wiretaps by the FBI who did their best to try to discredit him. A large percentage of the country, certainly a very large percentage of white people in the country reviled Dr. King during his lifetime truly considered him a dangerous and disreputable figure. It took incredible courage for him to do the things that he did and to continue on the path that he chose. To know him better, I'll talk a little about his upbringing. He was born January 15, 1929. So yesterday was his birthday. He would have been 93 years old. But instead he died when he was barely 39 years old. He died April 4th, 1968, the victim of an assassin. He grew up during the Great Depression, during the Jim Crow era in the South, when he was barely a teenager, the Second World War started. He grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and he came from a family of Baptist ministers. His maternal grandfather was the leader of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. His father was a minister, and when his father married his mother, they moved to Atlanta 
His father became the assistant pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And when his father-in-law passed away, he became the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was to be the future spiritual home of Dr. King himself. So three generations leading the same congregation. He was a smart, engaging, mischievous child with rare sensitivity. One time he was horsing around with his younger brother, sliding down the stairs and his younger brother knocked over his grandmother who at first didn't move after being knocked down and young Martin thought that she had gotten killed. And he was so upset and he thought that he was the instigator of it all. And so he ran upstairs and jumped out a second story window trying to commit suicide. Fortunately for all of us, he was unsuccessful in committing suicide. And he lay on the, on the ground there uh, below that second story window. And it was only when he heard that his grandmother was actually okay that he stood up, brushed himself off and resumed his life. His father, as the minister of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, was very successful. So even though he grew up during the depression, he did not grow up in poverty and want. His father was actually sent on a multi-nation visit to Egypt and Palestine at that time, uh, visiting Jerusalem, and Bethlehem, visiting Rome, and concluding in Berlin, where there was a conference, an international conference of Baptist clergies, the Baptist World Alliance. And this was in 1935, when Hitler had only recently come to power in Germany. And Dr. King, Dr. King's father was able to witness firsthand the harsh racism and anti-Semitism of the Nazi regime. The Baptist World Alliance issued an official statement condemning the Hitler regime. 
but that experience stayed with his father. And when his father came home, he changed his name from Michael King to Martin Luther King to honor the Christian Reformation leader. And when he changed his own name from Michael to Martin Luther, he changed his son's name from Michael King to Martin Luther King Jr. The young Martin had a white friend when he was very young, but at six years old, when he was to start school, his friend was sent to one school and he was sent to a different school. This was the day of Jim Crow legislation and segregation was the rule throughout the South of course, including Atlanta, Georgia. And when he went to his friend's house after school, his friend's mother told him he couldn't come around anymore because he was colored. And when he returned home, feeling humiliated, his father had the talk with him that so many black parents have had with their children about the history of slavery and racism in America. And the young Martin expressed his hatred for white people because of that history of slavery and racism and his own humiliation. And his father told him that he should never say such a thing. And that it was his duty as a Christian to love all people, including those who are lost in the darkness of ignorance. He was a precocious adolescent. He loved to read. He loved to dance. He loved snappy clothes. And he loved to flirt with girls. He was very charming, very outgoing, and very popular. As a teenager, he engaged in a debate traveling, I forget to which town, 
another town in Georgia. And he was so persuasive that he won the debate. But when he was returning home from the debate with his father, the white bus driver called him a black son of a bitch and told him to get into the back of the bus. And again, the rage against injustice swelled in him. When he was 15, it was the time of World War II, 1944. And Morehouse College, one of the historically black colleges, one of the best of the historically black colleges, was admitting promising young juniors from high school because so many of their students were off fighting in the war that they had many vacancies. And rather than try to get by with very small enrollment, they opened their doors to younger gifted students. And so Martin began college at the age of 15. The summer before college, he was sent on a sort of work study program to earn money for his coming semester to pay for his tuition and his books, a program that was sponsored by Morehouse College. And he was sent up north to Connecticut, a town called Simsbury in Connecticut. And he worked on a tobacco farm. It was very hard work, not well paid. He earned $4 a day for working from 7 a.m. to well after 5 p.m. But he earned money and he was very surprised and impressed by the relative freedom of black people up north. No one told him to get to the back of a bus. No one told him he couldn't sit here. He had to sit there. No one told him he couldn't use the restroom or the water fountain. It was an amazing experience for him. He was only 15 years old and all he had known was the segregated South. He graduated from college when he was 19 and then went to Crozier Theological Seminary and got another degree. And then eventually to Boston College to get his PhD in theology. All the while he was reading philosophy, 
literature, entertaining doubts about his Christian upbringing, wondering just how he would make his way in the world. And eventually he realized that what he wanted most was to be a force for good, a force for progress, for equality. And that the best way that he could do that was by following his father's footsteps, his grandfather's footsteps, and pursuing the ministry. So that's how he came to be in a position in 1955 to become involved in the boycott of buses in Montgomery, Alabama. And I'm going to leave his personal biography aside for now. I just wanted to give you an idea of who he was in his formative years. Every year we talk about Dr. King and all of the details of his career as an activist can wait for another time. I wanna get back to his, the text. Where do we go from here? This was a speech that he gave towards the end of his life. Of course, he didn't know it was the end of his life. I believe the speech was given in 1967 or early 1968, probably 1967. At a time when there had been some major strides made in civil rights. The Voting Rights Act had been passed. The Johnson social programs, the war on poverty had started. But still there was a great deal of confusion about how best to proceed in the quest for justice it was a time when the question of black power and what form black power should take was very much open. There were many people who advocated violence Dr. King was committed to nonviolence. His great hero in this respect was Mohandas Gandhi. Dr. King had seen the success that Gandhi had in 
defeating the English empire in England and attaining independence. And he knew that this was a strategy which the powerless could use against the powerful, a strategy which did not call for hatred, but love. And love in the deepest sense, love in the sense of the bodhisattva. In a speech that he gave on the power of nonviolence, he talked about how he brought the concept of nonviolence to the movement and how difficult it was at first to describe the philosophy and the strategy of nonviolence to people who had initially no interest in it, no understanding of it, no trust in it. But he patiently, day after day, week after week, explained the philosophy and the strategy. And part of that was to explain what he meant by love. And in his speech, The Power of Nonviolence, he says, the Greek language uses three words for love. It talks about eros. Eros is a sort of aesthetic love. It has come to us to be a sort of romantic love. And it stands with all of its beauty. But when we speak of loving those who oppose us, we're not talking about eros. The Greek language talks about philia. And this is a sort of reciprocal love between personal friends. This is a vital, valuable love. But when we talk of loving those who oppose you and those who seek to defeat you, we are not talking about eros or philia. The Greek language comes out with another word, and it is agape. Agape is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. Biblical theologians would say it is the love of God working in the minds of men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. And when you come to love on this level, you begin to love men, not because they are likable, not because they do things that attract us 
but because God loves them. And here, we love the person who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. It is this type of love that stands at the center of the movement that we are trying to carry on in the Southland, agape. Agape is the Greek word in Latin, the translation is caritas, from which we get the English word charity. And in the King James version of the Bible, in the famous passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the word love is translated as charity. In more modern translations, it is translated as love. And at the risk of sounding a bit like a Christian minister, I'm going to read you that chapter from Corinthians because it's one of the most beautiful passages of the Bible. And it is very much the embodiment of Dr. King's spirit and philosophy. It's also a wonderful expression of the bodhisattva ideal. When you think of what the Mahayana project is all about, you have to think of the bodhisattva, the bodhisattva ideal, what it means to be a bodhisattva, embodied for us in the great vows for all that we recite pretty much every day. However innumerable all beings are, I vow to save them all. This is the expression of selfless love, caritas or agape. So 1 Corinthians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. If I speak in human and angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, and comprehend all mysteries, and all knowledge, 
I have all faith. So as to move mountains. But do not have love. I am nothing. I give away everything I own. I hand my body over so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It is not pompous. It is not inflated. It is not rude. It does not seek its own interests. It is not quick tempered. It does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If there are prophecies, they will be brought to nothing. If tongues it will cease. If knowledge, it will be brought to nothing. For we know partially and we prophesy partially. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I used to talk as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. At present, we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. At present, I know partially. Then I shall know fully as I am fully known. So faith, hope, Love for me, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is what Dr. King means by love. Agape or caritas.
with that kind of love, anything is possible. This is the love of the Bodhisattva. So getting back to his text, love and power from where do we go from here? There's nothing wrong with power if power is used correctly. One of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as polar opposites so that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. It was this misinterpretation that caused Nietzsche, who was a philosopher of the will to power to reject the Christian concept of love, caritas. It was the same misinterpretation which induced Christian theologians to reject the Nietzschean philosophy of the will to power in the name of the Christian idea of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. These strain, these same themes are present in our society today. Dr. King's life was so influential and so much good was accomplished by his energy, his intelligence, the force of his personality the force of his conviction. And his willingness to sacrifice, even sacrificing his life. But the issues, even after the progress that was made when segregation was banished as the law of the land, when voting rights were granted, the issues didn't disappear as anybody who has been paying attention 
over the last decade or so can attest. Yes, we elected a black president and many people saw that as a culmination of a long march towards equality. But he was then followed in office by a blatant racist. who packed the Supreme Court with judges who have done everything but strike down the Voting Rights Act. The issues remain. Love and power. Donald Trump was a president devoid of love. Devoid of love for anybody but himself and for anything other than power and wealth. I personally am not a politically oriented individual. It's not my passion. It's not my strength. But one would have to be blind not to recognize these issues. We need someone or perhaps many people with the strength of conviction, the courage, the wisdom that Dr. King had to help us clarify the relationship between love and power. Dr. King said, I'm concerned about a better world. I'm concerned about justice. I'm concerned about brotherhood. I'm concerned about truth. There's a, there's a joke about the difference between the word concerned and the word committed. When you're talking about an omelet, 
the chicken is concerned, but when you're talking about fried chicken, the chicken is committed. Dr. King was much more than concerned. One is concerned about these, one can never advocate violence. Through violence, you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate. And darkness cannot put out darkness. Only light can do that. And so I say to you, I have decided to stick to love. For I know that love is ultimately the only answer to humanity's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. There is no better example of a strong demanding love than Dr. King. Of course, he had many allies, many people who walked with him. Congressman John Lewis, for example, who was nearly beaten to death on the march to Selma. I've seen too much hate. I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. And not just the sheriffs in the South, but policemen in the North who murder black men and women at traffic stops. The white men who chased Ahmed Arbery in pickup trucks and murdered him and who would have gotten away with it if one of them hadn't been stupid enough to actually film the incident on his phone. And two months later, only after the video was leaked, they were arrested. This hatred still exists. 
I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizens counselors in the South to want to hate myself. Because every time I see it, I know that it does something to their faces and their personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love. If you're seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. If you're seeking your Buddha nature, start with love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving against wrong when we do it. Because John was right. He's quoting from the book of John in the New Testament. God is love. God is agape, caritas. The selfless love of the true Christian. The selfless love of the true bodhisattva. He who hates does not know God. But he who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. And I can think of no finer words to end this session with. He who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.